you all enjoyed thoroughly the six young men who spoke to us on six facets of salvation. Did you enjoy that? Were you encouraged and challenged? Were you rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us? You know, salvation is just that. It's a, it's a gem. It's a cut diamond that through the New Testament we get to see the various facets of that salvation and what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. But it wasn't always that way. If you think back to the Old Testament, it was merely an uncut, buried gem that people were looking forward to, but they didn't see those facets. They didn't, they don't, they didn't see those shiny surfaces of the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. Right. All the way from the Garden of Eden, and the, and the fact that Jesus Christ would bruise the serpent's head, all the way down to the fact when Simeon held that baby in his arms, they did not yet see all those full facets of salvation. But through the New Testament and the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, we can see what he did for us. All the way from forgiveness to reconciliation to atonement to ransom to propitiation, all those things come together to have a brilliant gem, a cut diamond, that we can see all those different surfaces those polished services from the New Testament scriptures. We are thankful for that, and we're looking forward to the six young men to show us six more of those cut surfaces, those facets of Christ's salvation for us. Amen. Brother Jonathan. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, and hold your finger there after you get there, and turn to Romans 5. We'll be flipping back and forth between the two. While you're turning, I'll read you a few words from Isaiah 53. Representation is one of the most basic parts of salvation. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay. We'll start in Romans 5. Mr. Eastland opened this morning with verses uh, 6 and 7, I believe, maybe 8. So I'll, I'll start after that for the sake of time and hope that you recall what he read there. Verse 9, Romans 5, 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let me stop there for a second. The concept of representation is one of the rules of the game, so to speak, where the attributes of one person can be applied to many people. Uh, and the aspect of our salvation about that is that the actions, the life, 
the righteousness of Christ was applied to all of his children. He represented us. We are uh, held accountable, but the opposite of that, for all of his righteousness, even though we didn't do all of that righteousness. And on the cross, he was held accountable for our sins, even though he didn't commit any sins. That's the concept of representation. But that wasn't the first time that we've been represented. The first time was in the Garden of Eden. Adam was our representative. So this section of Romans 5 here from verses 12 through the end of the chapter deals with that contrast between Adam being our first representative and Christ being our second representative. There's a couple things that I'd like to point out in this passage as we go through it. First, there's some thought today, mostly among modern philosophical circles, that Christ died the death of a martyr, more or less. Well, that's not true. He was our substitute. He died as a substitute for us. He atoned for our sins. Uh, secondly, we're going to rec- run across the word all in this passage, and I'd like to point out what that means and doesn't mean. And uh, thirdly, we're going to run across the words much more five times in this passage. And I'd like to to think about that, propose some ideas as to what that could mean and have you consider uh, what those words could be could be saying. So um, let's let's pick up where we just left off at verse 12, Romans 5. And uh, recall that parentheses can be taken out for the moment, so I'll skip the the parenthetical expression and read you the thoughts. You can see where Paul is going, and then we'll go back to the parentheses. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Skipping to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Okay, let's return to the parentheses. So, from verses 13 to 17, Paul is going to explain what he meant in verse 12, when he said, for all have sinned. He wasn't saying that we commit sins on a daily basis. He was saying that all have sinned and that Adam was their representative. He was our legal representative. When he sinned, the the consequence of that was that all of humanity was then condemned and held responsible for that because he was our representative. So starting in verse 13, he's going to explain what he meant in verse 12. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. What he's saying is, from Adam to Moses, that was before the Ten Commandments were given. There was one real official commandment, which was, don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. So Adam committed that sin, but everybody that came after him before the law was given didn't commit that sin. They were sinful in other ways, but they didn't do that one. But everybody still died. Everybody still suffered the same consequence that Adam suffered. 
So picking up back in verse 14. Uh, even after them, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come, which is Christ. Okay, um, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 here. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verses 21 and 22 at this point. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We can go back to Romans 5. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we have the word not in verse 16, and it, it might confuse you a little bit. So to rearrange the wording to make it more fitting to what we might understand, you can take that word out for a moment and then, and then read it that way, and it will make more sense. I'll show you. And as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one, un, one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So it's the same, only the opposite. So the representation of Christ was the same, as in he represented a large number of people just like Adam did, only in the opposite way. Adam was to death. Christ was to justification. So um, the, the question here that's come up is, who is the all? It says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you pull it back over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, that's the verse I just quoted. It tells us who that all is that is made alive in the next verse, verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So the point is, the all that are being referred to in verse 22 are the ones that are Christ's. And they're the ones that are being resurrected in the last day and going to heaven. That's the all under consideration. And therefore, the all that is in Adam is the same thing. It's all the ones that were represented by Adam, which happens to be the whole human race. Okay, we have to move on to our next point here. So I'm, uh, I'm going to assume you know this passage well enough that we can kind of refer to it. We see the words much more five times in Romans chapter 5. We run across it in verses 9, 10, 15, 17, and 20. Now I mentioned a second ago, you know, Adam condemned us, Christ justified us. It seems like an equal transaction doesn't it? You know, one's death, one's life, they're the same, just in the opposite direction, right? Well, let's think about that for a second. The, uh, the much mores in verses 9 and 10 
are a little bit different from the other three. They're saying, if we've been justified by Christ, how much more will the final phase of salvation also be accomplished, as in being raised from the dead and going to heaven? Meaning, everybody that Christ died for is going to wind up in heaven. The ones in verses 15, 17, and 20 are a little bit different. They're saying that the work of Christ was much better than the work of Adam. There's a couple of reasons why that could be the case. One, it's a question of who did the work. If you can flip back over to 1 Corinthians 15 for a second. And this time jump to uh, closer to the end, verse 48. 47, sorry. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Right. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. The point is that the, because of who did the work, our redemption is much more thorough, much more effective than our condemnation was. Therefore, we should have more confidence in it. Now, there's a heresy commonly taught that Christ died for all men, and only some of them are winding up in heaven, and this condemns that. There's no chance that Christ would die for one person and they not end up in heaven. There's not a chance of that, because Adam's work was very very thorough in sending all of us to hell without the redemption of Christ. Therefore, Christ's work has to be much more thorough than that. The Arminian scheme seems much less thorough. So um, I'd like you to think about that some more and see if you can find some more reasons why Paul would have used the words uh, much more in that passage. And, uh, and glory in the representation, but basically the second representation we should be very excited about. Amen. Let's turn on our burgundy hymnals to hymn number 118. Hymn number 118, talking about our representation.
Amen. Amen. Brother Travis? What were you just saying? Do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. Amen. It's our hope. We believe about Jesus and what He did. I'm doing reconciliation and uh, what amazing when I first opened up uh, the Knaves Topical Bible and I, I opened that up and I just just looked at the topic itself and all the different verses on it and uh, you know it can bring you can bring you to tears you know just thinking that God can do such a thing as reconcile His enemies. Right. Amen. Um, I, to explain reconciliation, I, I read it. I read it. Uh, the di- dictionary definitions of it. Um, I'll explain it in my own words. It was. Uh, it's when two parties are against each other, and and to reconcile them it means for them to come together and to be friends again. That's basically what it means, and that's what it, where the Bible uses it a lot. Um, start with John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Amen. And uh, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. Amen. Without Jesus Christ whitewashing blood, and cleansing us from our sins, we are plainly put enemies of God. Because every time we sin, He is at enmity. He's He's angry with us without the Lord Jesus Christ. He has anger and hatred towards sin. All the men in the Old Testament had to offer a sacrifice. They had to offer a sacrifice for reconciliation. And that sacrifice did not work for long before they had to make another sacrifice. There was a time when we were, we were lost. I was lost. I know that. But I, I believe that every single person in this room, whether you're coming from a, a Christian background or not, you were lost. You were dead. We didn't really have God. Or we had a false one. That did nothing for us. There was times when we all had no hope. There was no faith, and we were, we were friends of the world. And enemies of God, like, chapter, like James says. But, oh, thank, I thank the Lord so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. That He came and preached peace. And He preached peace to his disciples and his disciples his disciples wrote it down his disciples kept record of the things he said and we are benefiting from it today and I can get to I get to read about his reconciliations right. for, of his people and uh, 
Let's read, uh, continuing in John chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 14, since I already read 13. Ye are my friends. If you, if ye do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. This is our hope, like, like the hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Sinners reconciled. Um, yeah, this is our hope. We were enemies through our wicked works, yet Jesus Christ used his unspotted, sinless body of his flesh through death to make us holy and reconciled to God our Father. Right. He was the propitiation. Um, he was the object that was used to reconcile us to God. There's an example of another example of reconciliation in the Bible with Jesus involved between Pontius Pilate and Herod when they are trying to figure out why um, he needs to be crucified, why, why he needs such a conviction. And when Pontius Pilate was trying to figure that out, he realized that, that it was in Herod's jurisdic- jurisdiction, so he sent Jesus to Herod. And when that transaction happened... Um, it says that Herod and Pontius Pilate were reconciled. They were, they, they were at enmity against each other, but that enmity was abolished because they were reconciled. They came together as they were, they were uh, friends there. Um, so in, instead of, um, this is our hope, instead of keeping it from us, Instead of Jesus keeping it from us and keeping it from his disciples and just going to the cross, and he, he, he made it known. He told us about it. Right. And now we have hope in this world when we didn't have hope. And now I have hope in this world. Walking in the cor- I was walking in the course of this world in the broad way, but I heard the gospel and, and I heard that, that Jesus died so that we can be friends with God. We can be friends. And uh, that's a great thing. Yeah, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 12 through 19 explains. And I'll read this. That at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, and made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. 
Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Praise God. We may have different backgrounds. We may, may have gone through different things. Uh, some may have been close and some may have been far off. But we all had access to the Father by that one Spirit at some point in our lives. And we believed. We believed that, that gospel by His Spirit. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's turn then our burgundy hymnals to hymn number 463.
That's the spirit of reconciliation. Anywhere I go is home if Christ is there. Brother Eric, if you'd like to come. The great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? From Revelation 6. From Revelation 14. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, that is, without dilution, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. I want to describe to you briefly what we call the doctrine of satisfaction. You can be turning to Isaiah 53 if you'd like where the word satisfaction is mentioned in conjunction with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When I was young, I had a bit of a temper problem, and the wisdom and patience and, at times, strong beatings from my father and mother, I think, had some influence and, and uh, trained that out of me, thankfully. Think of a time in your life, perhaps, when you were very angry. All of us have been, and God placed that emotion in us and appeals to that emotion in this sense. Think of a time when you were treated unfairly or unjustly and you wanted revenge. And baby, when you got revenge, it felt good. Think of that anger that welled up inside you and that fury that you had inside you. And imagine, if you will for a moment, the holy God of the universe being treated wrongly and feeling that anger and that fury and that indignation at you. What is the problem? What drove that need for satisfaction? What we're looking at is why the difference between God and us. We see in Adam that as one by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned as Jonathan aptly described that sinning in Adam is representative of the whole human race, whether you have sinned or not. But in fact, we have. By the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Think of all men in general, not just Adam's sin. There is none righteous. No, not one from Romans 3. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which includes ours, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, from Romans 1. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. God says in one place, a fire is kindled in mine anger, which shall burn to the lowest hell. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is very much in a legal sense, although that can be also true in a practical sense. We see in the Old Testament Israel complaining at times, and it displeased the Lord, and it says the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. One time or several times when Israel fell into the trap of worshiping the wrong God, 
the Lord's judgment at one point was to hang up all the heads of the people that had worshipped Baal and had joined themselves to Baal Pure against the sun in front of the Lord so that his fierce anger would be turned away. Let's, uh, let's look at Isaiah 53 for a moment. And let's get to the point where there's satisfaction to this fury. Look at verse 10, if you will. 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It pleased the Lord. I'm going to pause as we go through this and comment briefly on each, on each phrase. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is where his anger and his fury found placation by finding an appropriate object for that anger and fury and pouring it out to the uttermost. But we see that it says it pleased the Lord to do it. He was happy to do it. It made sense. It was fitting and appropriate because in pounding him, he was pounding me and he was pounding Adam and he was pounding you. And it was appropriate, and it made sense to him, and it felt good. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. His anger at us was what killed Jesus. In a song we're about to sing, Stricken, Smitten of God. Stricken means to strike, and smite, smitten means to smite. And so God struck him and smote him. And in that sense, we see that the, the scourge of leather and cords and bits of metal and so forth that were in the whips that the Roman soldiers applied to his back. In that we see not the Roman soldiers' fury and wrath. That was but a pawn he used. It was God's fury and wrath at every stripe. By his stripes we are healed. Amen. He hath put him to grief, the next phrase says. This is intentional. He put him to grief. It is deliberate. It is premeditated pain caused upon him. He put him to grief. It was planned. Next phrase. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, that is, God made Jesus' soul an offering for sin, again we see that it was a deliberate action to sacrifice someone for a specific purpose. Right. Next phrase. He shall see, that's God shall see, his seed. Who is that referring to? Who is Jesus' seed in a legal sense? It's us. He shall see his seed. He shall, God shall, prolong his days, as in the resurrection. He brought him back to life after he killed him for our sins. He prolonged his days unto eternity. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Next verse. He shall see the travail of his soul. God looked down and observed the pain that Jesus Christ was going through, much more than just the physical pain. He observed it as the result of his punishment. He saw the travail of his soul. He didn't necessarily just only see the travail of his skin being laid open right. or the thorns on his brow, but he saw the travail of his soul. It was something much more deep and much more important at stake than simply being skinned alive. It was much more deep than that. He saw the travail of his soul. And we know that it was that because it says, by his knowledge, the next phrase, I'll skip ahead, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was doing. He shall see the travail of his soul, and here's our phrase, and shall be satisfied. Satisfied meaning placated, appeased, 
his wrath assuaged. He is now made content. He is now made happy because of that punishment. We see some clues during Jesus' life leading up to that moment where God reiterated that he was happy with him when the voice from the cloud came out several occasions where he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And again, when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, that satisfaction was accomplished. I'm going to read verse 12. Therefore, as a result, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul into death, and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Perhaps as a cross-reference to this somewhat obscure prophecy, we can look at Acts 2.33. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, which occurred immediately after he was punished, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear at the day of Pentecost. He received the Holy Ghost from the Father at his ascension and then dispensed it at the day of Pentecost, and continued to dispense it with gifts to the church, is what Ephesians 4 goes on to say. He made some pastors, teachers, etc., and grace and the fruits of the Spirit are some of those benefits of having received the Holy Ghost from God and dispensing it to His children. That is a benefit, and that's a direct result of satisfaction from this passage. Further, we have boldness to enter into the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus. Amen. We are now called the sons of God because of this satisfaction. Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. We receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. These are all spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus now. And we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is because of this satisfaction. So in conclusion, I'd like to ask you a question. And that is, are you as angry at your sin and the sins of those around you as God was and as God is. Are you as angry? Do you share that fury at your own sin and the sins of those immediately in your sphere of influence like God does? Be ye holy as I am holy, he says. Also, as a second practical application, I want to say that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness as a result of being so you know, angry at your own sin, if you wish to be filled with righteousness, the uh, Matthew 5 says that we shall be filled if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We shall be. And in fact, Psalm 17 has this to say, I shall be satisfied when I shall awake with his likeness. Amen. So that's a neat application of the word satisfied from Scripture, is that if we find within ourselves a hatred for sin in our own life, don't worry, you'll be satisfied one day when you awake in his likeness. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. So let's sing 257, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And let's consider the stroke that justice gave and how it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 257 in our red hymnals.
Amen. Amen. Wonderful points, brother. Wonderful points. Brother James, if you'd like to come and speak to us now. I'd like to thank the uh, brothers who have come before me. As I was telling uh, Brother Zach on the break, I feel like I'm in the company of much better men. And glory goes to God. Uh, I'm speaking on the facet of salvation known as adoption. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Right. It's First John chapter 3 and the first three verses. Brethren, why is this aspect of our salvation so important and so glorious? Is it profitable for us to think upon it? Yeah. Very much so. I dare say I picked the best facet. Adoption may be defined as simply taking someone who is not naturally yours and making them your child through legal means, and it involves a price. As has been said before, by many, if not all, of our brothers, we were born into this world as sinful men and women, dead in sins and serving our own lusts, children of sin, who fell in Adam, and children of the devil. As John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And as we read before in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Our spiritual adoption is very important. If for one reason, because the Holy Creator God of the universe sovereignly chose us without our consent before the world began. As it says in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It pleased him. It was his pleasure. Our adoption is also glorious because of the price that was paid. Did you listen to what our brother Eric just described? Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Amen. Our God is a holy and a righteous God, and the only way for us to be accepted in his presence was for Jesus to be our substitute and to die for our sins. But Christ, even though Christ died in our place and paid the penalty for our sins, that only made us accepted legally before the Lord. God has shown the greatest act of love imaginable in this universe, and that for his own glory and honor, he's chosen to make us his sons and daughters. Amen. Redemption describes the purchase price from God's justice, but it does not make us his sons. Right. Pardon for crimes committed is a great deliverance, but it does not make us his sons. Justification clears of guilt and condemnation and makes us righteous, but it doesn't make us God's sons. Sanctification as a holy object without sin is wonderful, but it does not make us God's children either. Consider it this way. You have to be justified to be adopted, but you don't have to be adopted to be justified. Adoption rises considerably higher than any other aspect or facet of our salvation in in Christ Jesus. I'm very thankful for it. It's very profitable for us to think upon it, on this great love that was bestowed upon us, because we have remaining sin, 
melancholy hearts, and fiery darts of the devil constantly attacking our spiritual man, we have to rejoice in glory in this great love of our salvation. Amen. I know I do. And it's not only profitable for us to believe it and to think upon it, but we have to live it. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18, which we've touched on before today. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. As the children of God by adoption, we, were given, we give evidence to others and to ourselves of our changed nature by the lives we live. Finally, brethren, we have to glory with thanksgiving and praise to the Lord because he's our father and has prepared an inheritance in heaven for us. If you would, please turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 18 to you in conclusion. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we, may also, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. Turn on our burgundy hymnals to hymn number 383. Hymn number 383.
I have a, uh, I guess you could say, a unique privilege today to, to speak about this subject. As a few of you may know, uh, this was not the subject I, subject I originally thought I was going to be speaking on, which I was very excited about. But when I was given this one, I was given occasion to look at it, as one should when they're studying to say something from God's Word, and I found great happiness in looking at this subject. I found that it gave me an opportunity to do something that I hadn't anticipated as such. The subject at hand is acceptation. It's not the most commonly referred to part of our salvation in the Bible, and it's not mentioned that often. Yet at the same time, every single Sunday, and honestly every day of the week, there are thousands of people out there who speak about acceptation. They go to prisons, they go to street corners, they go to malls, they speak from pulpits about acceptation. But they take the biblical principle of God accepting us, and they turn it into us accepting God. So I have a privilege today to set right the gospel. Amen. And that's, that, that is a privilege. And it's a privilege that I, that I am looking greatly forward to. Acceptation is abused frequently. It's given to everyone. We're, you're told almost on a daily basis. Some of us hear it frequently, even still. Some of us heard it in schooling, um, in various other churches. The constant pressure to accept Jesus, to accept Jesus into your heart. Well, looking at this, I looked through scripture and I looked for every single mentioning of the word accept and accepted and acceptation, all the various forms of the word. Nine times out of ten, the word is used for God accepting us or God accepting things, sacrifices. The other times are speaking generally about sin, that of accepting men's persons. So finding something that is bandied about to everyone, regardless of if they care about God in the least, to see that something that's pushed so hard upon others isn't really even there. You, you maybe can find one reference that can be applied to us accepting God. Maybe. And I really can't think of it off the top of my head. Now, the biblical emphasis of God accepting man, of God accepting, man, of God accepting sacrifices, not the other way around. There are huge amounts of it in the Old Testament of God saying, this is what I want you to do. And if you don't do it right, I'm not going to accept it. Or if you do do it right, I will accept it. God is very specific in what he accepts. He has stringent standards. If you were to make a sacrifice and you were to offer it before God as a burnt offering and you were to wait three days, it was an abomination before God if you waited three days to eat it. Abomination. That's what God considers acceptable and not. He is that stringent in his standards. That is the God we serve, the great king of the universe. He refuses to accept worship that's mixed with hypocrisy, that's mixed with idolatry, that's mixed with respective persons. He is very stringent in what he accepts. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I have to deal with the negatives a lot before I even get to the positives of acceptation. What is God's view of man? We've already had these verses given to us today, but I want to look at them in a different light than you normally hear them. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. And most of you immediately know 
what we think about when we think of this. We think about God hating the wicked, and most people don't believe that. And so we look at these verses because it tells us God hates the wicked. But verses 4 and 5 say the following, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Looking at the different phrases than we normally do, it says quite clearly that neither shall evil dwell with thee. To God, evil is unacceptable. It can't be in his presence. Anything that possesses evil cannot be in God's presence. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Have any of us ever done anything foolish? Amen. I mean, I'm I'm standing in front of you, and uh, I've done foolish things. I'm not worthy. I'm unacceptable to God. That is our state. We are utterly and completely unacceptable before God. There is nothing in us that is worthy of God. And again, I have to show you how deep this goes for you to understand it. Because there are very few passages that speak about this principle, but it's important. I mean, I'll be honest, I was very thankful to be put directly after James and the idea of adoption because this idea ties in a little bit to this. We are unacceptable by how we start with God. Galatians 5 and verse 19, if you turn there with me. What is our hope? Our hope is that one day we will see the kingdom of God. We will be in heaven with him. We will have the joys of our Lord to be with him forever. I mean, that, that's our hope, isn't it? Amen. Right. Galatians 5, starting at verse 19 and through 21, tells us, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, but I'll answer for all of you and myself. We're all in that list. We can't inherit the kingdom of God. We are not worthy. We are unacceptable. Plain and simple, there's nothing that we have that qualifies us for the kingdom of God. We are completely unacceptable before him. So, then we have to ask, well, is there some way that we are able to make ourselves acceptable to God? And I'd ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 64. There are religious systems in this world. Most religious systems are, well, the purpose of religious systems is to make you acceptable to some God, whether it be the true God or some false God. They all are out there to try and show a relationship, to say that you have something beyond this. And there is a whole majority of Christianity, if it could be called such, as the world calls it Christianity, that believes that you can be made acceptable to God because of your works. If you do what's right, if you do your sacraments, and if you are baptized properly and you repent and you do all these various little works, that you're acceptable before God. And my answer is, go for it. Go for it. Offer the king of glory your works. Just try it. Because Isaiah 64's response in verse 6 is simple. 
But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And all we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Offer your works. Offer your filthy rags before the King of Glory. Go ahead and try. Unacceptable. Then there are the others who would say that, well, it's our faith. If we offer our faith, we can make ourselves acceptable before God. Let me ask you a practical question. Somebody's offended you. They've slandered you. They've hurt you. They've tried to seek your harm throughout their entire life. And they come up to you one day and say, I want to be acceptable to you now. And then they go and keep doing the same thing. Are you going to accept that? Is that acceptable to any of you? How about the righteous judge of the universe? Is that acceptable to him that your will somehow makes you acceptable to him? It doesn't make sense. Brethren, there is only one way that we can be made acceptable to God. There's only one way that God can say that we have something worthy of him, and that's through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Glorious chapter filled with so many wonderful things. And there are two ways here in which we are acceptable to God that I want you to see. And so I'm intentionally going to stop at one point so I can keep them separate. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted. And I'm stopping right there. He hath made us accepted. Our very nature makes us unacceptable. Our every work is unacceptable to God. Our faith itself is unacceptable to God by itself. But Jesus Christ has made us accepted. I'm sorry, brethren, I can't give you much more than what the Word of God says. I mean, if if that doesn't if seeing where we sit, if seeing man's efforts doesn't show you that you're unacceptable and doesn't make you excited to know that you're accepted, I can't do much more, honestly. Brethren, Christ made us accepted before God. We can be in his presence forever. When he can't have sin around him, he has cleansed us so that we can be with him. But it goes beyond that, and that's why I'm thankful to be directly after James, because the idea that came closest in my mind to this idea of acceptation is that of adoption. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Brethren, we start out at a state of absolute unacceptability. We are dust, and not just dust. We are clay and mud that has fought against God, that is worthy of hellfire forever. Now, there's a state beyond that. There are angels who have never fallen. They're acceptable before God. They're in his presence constantly because they're without sin. We don't end up there. We are beyond the angels. He hasn't just made us acceptable to him. He's made us accepted in the beloved. We are his children. He has made us more than just neutral. He could have just made us neutral. He could have had us glorify him forever as angels, just mere servants. Instead, he has made us part of his beloved. God loves us. 
We're not mere servants, brethren. We're beloved of God. How it, it defies explanation that we can go from a state where we have nothing to where he loves us, that we are an object of his affection. That's the glory of our God, brethren. Brethren, it's mentioned infrequently in the Bible. It's abused by so many others, this entire idea. But brethren, it's glorious. It's part of our salvation that we are accepted and we are accepted in the beloved of God. Glorify him, brethren. Glorify him because we could still, we could still think that it's our job to accept and not to be accepted. Glorify him because we could be neutral. Glorify him because we could still belong in hellfire. Brethren, glorify our God because he's given us so much more than we can ask or think, so much more than we can deserve. Our God has accepted us. Lowly worms that we are, he's accepted us. Amen. Amen. Turn in our burgundy hymnals to hymn number 325. Burgundy hymnals, hymn number 325.
Amen. Amen. Brother Chris. The aspect or facet of salvation I chose to consider is that of pardon. Simple definition, a pardon is a forensic or legal work of declaring a guilty party free from their crimes and innocent before the law by an executive decree or order. It is an exemption of a convicted person from the penalties of an offense or crime by the power of the executor of the laws. The most common Bible synonym or parallelism for pardon is forgiveness, like Brother Stephen had this morning. Amnesty and clemency are also good synonyms. The phases of pardon emphasized in the Bible are the legal phase of pardon and the practical phase. We might benefit just a little, perhaps, from considering pardons of a civil nature as they are used in this country by the power vested in the president by the Constitution. The president in the Constitution is granted power to pardon anyone he chooses. The person being pardoned has usually been convicted of a federal crime. There is a pardon attorney in the Justice Department through which requests for pardons can be made. Not always, but often, the pardon is issued only after at least part of the sentence for the crime has been served. You must provide evidence you have otherwise lived an exemplary life in order to increase your chances of obtaining a pardon. On the Department of Justice website, there is a pardon form that you can download several pages for you to fill out you even have to list your traffic violations. You list good things that you have done, contributions to charity, work with the disadvantaged, or other things that you list. Even if you were to receive a presidential pardon, you must still disclose your conviction and crime on any form requesting that information in the future, though you may also disclose that you've been pardoned. The presidential pardon essentially restores your civil rights. Presidential pardons are greatly desired by criminals facing significant punishment for federal offenses. God has graciously, through Jesus Christ, pardoned us from our sins that we committed against him. All instances of the use of the word pardon in the Bible they occur in the Old Testament, although closely tied with the concept of forgiveness, which is used throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 33, 8, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. We learn a couple of things about the act of pardoning from this verse. We learn that cleanse is another synonym for pardon. We learn a little of why pardons are desirable. God's pardon of the Jews here would cleanse them from all iniquity. The verse states twice. What is your condition before God if he does not pardon you? Then according to the same verse, You are still held guilty for sins, iniquities, and transgressions against him. 
What else is your condition if God does not pardon you? According to Exodus 34, 9, you will be separated from God. In Exodus 33, due to Israel's sins, Moses packed up the tabernacle and moved it far outside the camp of Israel because of their sin and rebellion against God. Exodus 34, 9, in Moses' prayer, And he, that is Moses, said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, rather than being separated outside the camp, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. According to this verse, and considering the context of the previous chapter where Moses had to move the tabernacle, if God does not pardon iniquity and sin, it results in separation from God. The children of Israel, when they heard that God was not going to go with them, even though they were in a very sinful state, they realized that separation from God was very undesirable for them and would surely result in great trouble for them. Consider God's willingness to pardon. Nehemiah 9.17, in recounting a history of Israel, But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Consider this instance in which a great man asked for God's pardon on behalf of others, and God directly answered that petition positively. Numbers fourteen nineteen. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Consider God's graciousness in hearing and answering Moses' prayer, although there was nothing in Israel to merit God's pardon. On what basis did Moses ask for a pardon to be given? The greatness of God's mercy. Can we ask for pardon on the same basis practically in our lives? Yes. But we can ask with greater knowledge than Moses had because we can ask through the merits of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as well. Consider the uniqueness of God's pardoning grace. Other gods are not known for this. Micah 7:18, "Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy." God is willing to pardon. God is unique in his granting of pardons. But consider the overwhelming completeness of God's pardons. God pardons abundantly. When God pardons, he doesn't pardon partially or halfway. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Another verse on the overwhelming completeness of God's pardons. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right. 
That last phrase, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Jonathan, in representation, just emphasized much more, much more, much more, three times at the end of Romans 5. Does God put a number on that indirectly? Double. How much more? Double. Amen. Receiving of the Lord's hand double for all her sins means more than merely achieving neutrality with God. It means the previously guilty party is moved to a position of love, acceptance, and close fellowship with God. May the Lord be praised. Turn our red hymnals to hymn number 467. Hymn number 467. Hymn number 467 on our red hymnals.
Wasn't that good? I hope you're rejoicing in spirit over hearing those 12 facets of salvation. The Lord's merciful to give us so many young men who can get up and preach his word to us and give us some very good things to hear and rejoice in. Praise the Lord for them. Thank you, young men, all 12 of you, for the time you spent studying and preparing and getting up and speaking to us. We appreciate that. Thank you. Remember the announcements. Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock right here for the family evening supper. And Brother New will be bringing to us a study from God's Word. Pray for him as you remember that time. Remember to RSVP Andrea by Wednesday so that she has a complete list of those coming to the wedding soon. The youth gathering tonight at Stephen Eastland's at 6 o'clock. Those are our announcements. Let's stand and have be dismissed with prayer. Our Father in heaven, it has been good to be in the house of the Lord this day. Amen. Thank you for giving us your truth, for giving us your word, and for blessing us to hear these young men today to speak on the great salvation that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Our Father, go with us to our respective places. Bless and keep us during this coming week. Help us to remember thy salvation and to live lives in accordance with thy salvation. Bless us to seek after holiness, to seek after righteousness, and to live according to your commandments this week, to love thee, to seek thee, to thirst for thee, as we ought to in our hearts. Our Father, have mercy upon us. Direct our steps toward thyself, our thoughts toward thee this day. In Jesus' name, amen.